witchcraft, black magic sorcery. To me, it's nothing but fairy tale mumbo jumbo. Sure, I've made a few mistakes, but I've learned from them. I've learned. I keep your secrets and you keep mine, okay? We must be ready for a new danger. Like a gigantic computer? That's only part of the story. That end looks so worried, it's gonna be all right. So there are two loose heads just floating around in here somewhere? True. And so! Today on Truth and Soul Incorporated, we are talking to Andy Blood. Andy is originally from the UK, where like most unemployed creatives, he spent several months living in a paper bag in a septic tank while looking for a job. After time at Rainy Kelly Campbell Rolfe, he headed over to New Zealand, where he worked at Sarches in Auckland, Wyburn TBWA, and also Colenso BBDO, doing some great work and getting himself three Kang Grand Prix in the process. He spent time at uh, in Singapore at Betis and for the last five years has been at Facebook doing whatever it is they get up to at Facebook. We had a great time reminiscing about uh, David Walden, talking about where he sees the future of advertising and also talking up his new book which is apparently available at Amazon for a very reasonable price. Unlike me, Andy is irrepressibly enthusiastic about most things and he also mentions NFTs a couple of times which should get us the cashed up hipsters audience. He's a great fella, so have a listen. You're listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Uh, okay, well, today on uh, Truth and Soul Incorporated, we have Andy Blood. Uh, and Andy was one of the main uh, ECDs when I started in New Zealand about 20 years ago. It was kind of the gang that, that existed back then. Uh, he's been a former world's number one awarded ECD. Uh, he was ECD at Colenso for a while, um, maybe best known as partner in ECD of TBWA for nine years, uh, and recently has spent the last five years working at Facebook. Now, we'll get on to that in a minute, but welcome, Andy. Thank you, Paul. Uh, uh, we haven't seen each other for a long time. Uh, partly, I, I don't actually know uh, why not, because we've, we've kind of worked, been in the same uh, universe for a while. But, um, Andy, uh, where did it go wrong? I mean, where did it start to go right? Where are you from? <laughs> where am I from? I was born in... Organised chaos. That's the way we run. I was born in Stockport. Um, so a Manchester lad. So, so I support Man United because I'm one of the Mancunians who lives away from the city. So... Um, you support. Yeah, I never knew you were a man. Yeah, you're a Man U fan if you if you don't live in Manchester, and you're a Man City fan if you live in Manchester. So, um, yep. grew up in Derbyshire, town beautiful town called Buxton, um, the Peak District, um, rolling hills, sheep, woods, forest, um, home of the famous Buxton Mineral Water, um, an opera house, um, and left Buxton to go to. Durham University and studied economics and left with an economics degree in 1989 and was destined for the Bank of England. I was on my third interview at the Bank of England to go and work as a some kind of trader, I think, from memory. I had a lucky escape. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that is the where did it go wrong, where did it go right moment. Um, I could have spent the last 20 years in the city, um, mm. which could have been... And be considerably richer and more miserable. And probably probably wouldn't be here. Yeah. 
1989, December 89, I was on my third interview at the, at the Threadneedle Street, on Threadneedle Street, and my father passed away. And I was 22. And that was a pivotal moment. And I thought, you know, do I really want to spend the rest of my life in a, in a, in a bank, um, in finance, in the city? And made a change that day or the morning after um, uh, my father's passing and um, applied for Watford College copywriting course. And uh, uh, why? Because well, I, I understand why you, um, you know, bereavement. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, it causes you to reappraise your life. But why go, ah, copywriting? Yeah. My father was a musician and he traveled the world, had an amazing life, and he died age 46, so incredibly young. Wow. And yeah. I remember thinking, what can I do to give me the life that he had, um, given that I've only got one-tenth of the talent he had? Um, I wasn't mm. going to make it as a muser. I probably wasn't going to travel the world that way. But I thought, you know, advertising, commercials, film, they seem to have um, a really similar kind of remit, you know, really similar life. So I can, I can probably do that. Um, so I set my sights on getting into advertising, actually, is the closest thing I could imagine to being, to being a rock star and following in, in dad's footsteps. What, was, there, was, there any, uh, was there a conversation with someone that led you to that? No, that was all internalized dialogue. Yeah. Um, I'd had a good mate, Danny Brooke Taylor, um, from the same school who went to Watford, um, I think, a year prior. So there was, you know, I had knowledge about this, you know, the industry and, and a semblance of how to get into it. And um, another schoolmate, John Weston, um, did similar. And he ended up at Howell Henry. So I think it's quite weird that three of us from one little college in Buxton um, sort of, yeah. sort of earmarked the same path and, um, yeah. and to, you know, to, to, I, sorry, I, I was just going to say for those, for those who are not English, Watford was the, the kind of the premier school. It was the only school of copywriting in the UK, uh, for some time. When you think of a country of 60 million people, we had one, whereas in, you know, New Zealand now we've got a few within 5 million. Yeah. And I think, you know, Watford was preeminent. You're right. It was it was copy based. It was um, Watford was also the center of the printing industry, so the newspaper industry, and and the hot metal type industry. So I think it made sense for all those things to be um, to share the same geography. I think outside Watford, if you had a kind of you know creative bone, then you could you could have a look at you know artistically. You might think of St Martin's. Um, I think Falmouth yep. had a had a had a course. You know, there, there were two or three courses for the more artistically uh, minded, but Watford seemed to be the um, the one for people with words, you know, could ply their trade. Yep, so you had a good time there? Yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, really enjoyed it. I think um, hilariously didn't graduate. Um, it was a year-long course. And, yeah. and that was really because um, we got a bite of a cherry. We went to, we got a, a month placement at McCann, followed by a month placement. Who, who is we? Uh, Richard Beesling. He was my um, my original partner. Yep. We met an interview. We met on the course. We teamed up teamed up within week one or week two, um, stayed together for eight years and, and did the rounds of, you know, the streets of London together, you know, schlepping your book around, yep. cold calling creatives and creative directors. And, 
We got a placement at McCann, followed that up with a placement at BMP. Um, uh, who, who was the uh, uh, creative director at McCann in those days? Jerry Green. I didn't remember. Jerry Green was the was the CD or the um, the boss of creative. I think he was famous for yeah. the famous long running Nescafe gold blend mm. soap opera. You know that had been yep. on TV for several years by then and was quite the thing. You know, yep. and I think under, under Jerry, um, we were taken under the wing of Jan Mezdag, who had recently been at GGT and um, famously written um, "Get Your Gums Off My Poppadoms." Um, it's one of the brilliant commercials that came out of uh, GGT, and they used a an Indian Elvis, Pat Elvis. Um, as one of the famous commercials of the time. And, and Yan took Richard and I under his wing and made sure that we had good briefs, good things to work on. And yeah, we, yeah. we, we I, had I, it. I was at McCann's. At the time, from memory, McCann's didn't have a great, it was a job, which was you know, a great start. Didn't have a great creative direct, um, reputation in London. Yeah, it was a job. Yeah. And 1991 was the great recession of its time. You know, the post... You know, the, yeah, remember it well. the bubble of the 80s had well and truly burst. So, you know, the glamour of advertising already, you know, had gone and was replaced by, you know, the cold, the cold, dark recession of the early 90s. And I think we were, yeah. after McCann, we went to BMP. We had a placement there. Um, they just merged with DDB. They didn't have room to take us or didn't have money to take yeah. us at the time. We were there under Steve Reeves and Paul Gay, who were amazing. Frank Budgeon was there. Pete Gatley was there. Yeah. That was amazing. But it was McCann who came to the table with an office, so we took it. And yep. spent a year at McCann. And again, you know, the cold, the cold, chill wind of recession blew again, and we lost our first job in advertising. So we made redundant in uh, 92, spent a year on the streets, on the dole, um, working lots of jobs, and, you know, doing the round and building portfolios until... We got so so uh, just for um, Eddie, just for the guys listening who are you know, maybe starting out in advertising or or thinking. And I know we sound like a couple of uh, Monty Python Yorkshiremen <laughs> discussing shoebox in middle discussing Road. how yeah. But it was it was pretty tough in those days. It was um, there, you know there was a lot the you know team that uh, Mike O'Sullivan and I were at college with who spent three years. Um, uh, looking to get a job. There's a lot of time spent sleeping on sofas and, and going from agency to agency in the rain with portfolio under your arm. Absolutely that. Yeah. I was at university with, you know, a whole load of people who studied tax, accounting, law, you name it. And very quickly they, they went straight into graduate programs and within three or four years were earning a really good whack. But if you took the path into advertising, then then pretty much you were just destined to um, several years of placements, um, if you were yeah. lucky, 50 quid a week, if you were lucky, and days, weeks, months, years of, of schlepping around hard A2 portfolios in the the cold and unforgiving streets of, of London. Absolutely. Yeah, very... A very depressing time and it got to a lot of people and um i think one option at the time because things were quite limited then london seemed to be the epicenter of the advertising universe and if you couldn't make it there um a few friends went to hong kong a few to Sing singapore um 
and I remember I do remember the the you know the well known acronym of the time, um, filth, which was uh, fucked up in London, try Hong Kong, and it was you know the label for people who couldn't get a job in the UK and had to go to, you know, Hong Kong or, or Singapore or any other um, non UK country was pretty bitter when you think about it. Pretty cynical. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I I remember that. For sure, I think things have changed a lot now, but it was it, it was yeah, London or nothing in those days. Yeah, absolutely. And we were really lucky that there was an entire wave. You know, recessions seem to be the catalyst for these things, and there was an entire wave of new agencies all starting up. You know, so you had your Hal Henrys and you had your um, St. Luke's, and then Rainey Kelly Campbell Rolfe came along, uh, and then Mother. And we were really lucky that Tim Hearn and Kate Stanners, who were running GGT, gave us a tip off or put our names in front of uh, Jim Kelly, who'd set up Randy Kelly Campbell Rolf. And, yeah. you know, that, that one generous act changed our careers. You know, Richard and I went to work, spend a weekend working on a pitch for Randy Kelly. One thing led to another. Um, the agency had no headquarters at the time. Three or four months later, it did. And pretty soon we were, you know, we were through the door and we were working on pitch after pitch after pitch. We were helping to build a startup. We were doing really good work for really big clients um, really quickly, you know, five years ahead of what we would have been doing had we taken a path through three big agencies. So we, you know, we landed on our feet in a really lucky way to get into a startup that that was building great clients who wanted to do great work. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, and they were nice guys too. Yeah. Great people, really great people. And it's extraordinary looking back that we spent five years there um, um, as that agency grew and, and they were great people. The clients were great people and the work was really, really great. And, um, yeah. And we then managed. So you left, obviously. We got. We accelerated through that. You know, we managed to get through the years of the sort of fifty quid a week placement up to some kind of decent living wage. You know, it took took yep. about five years, I think. So why did you leave? I left. I left for love. I was um, in nineteen ninety eight, five years at Rainey Kelly. Um, there had been a very large influx of Kiwis into my life. And I was living in Maida Vale in a house full of Kiwis. And um, yeah. one thing led to another. I fell in love with uh, a young Kiwi lass. And in 1998, we decided to um, swap sides. Yeah. Exchange yeah. one side of the planet okay, so- for the other, and destined for uh, New Zealand we were. Yeah, and, and arrived in September 1998. Um, there, there's, uh, there's three coincidences between us. I used to live in Maida Vale for a bit. I spent some time working at Rainey Kelly Campbell Rolfe, though, then was why not. And I also immigrated to, to New Zealand. So, how um, did you get a job uh, down here before you left the UK, or were you? Searching around down here. It's bizarre. When, it's funny when you think about that, Paul, because we hadn't even met, had we? Um, given those coincidences, no. we didn't meet until you were here. Um, <clears throat> I think you know. Sorry, Richard, Richard was still at, at, at Wynar. Uh, 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 Rainy Kelly was he not? Yes, he I stayed might've... for another few years. Yeah. yeah, I think I might have met him. Yeah, there. we yeah. we picked up our first 
Gold Lion in 97, we were um, incredibly put on the board of Rainy Kelly, age 30, in about 1998, yeah. and given a small shareholding. Incredible when you look back. Um, but these things, the these things can happen. We made it onto campaigns, um, faces, you know, campaign every year did its faces to watch sort of issue. And we made it into that yeah. as being the creative team um, you must watch. And almost at that exact moment, I chose to give it all up. And my sights were set on New Zealand. So I came over here in March 98, had a look around um, in advance of that um I got a list of contacts uh, contacts off Malcolm Pointer, actually, funnily enough, who was coming the other way. So he just landed in the yeah. UK from New Zealand. He just got a job at BB- BBH. Um, I met Malcolm um, in Soho. We had a beer. He gave me his contact lists, um, and I ended up um, reaching out to Kim, Kim Thorpe, Sarchi Wellington, yeah. uh, John McKay, but Campaign Palace, and yep. then others such as Martin Brown, um, who were at Walker's. And I think such was the power of, of things like Lurtz's archive in those days, because you would see, you know, you would see great work from all over the world. So you could very quickly go, okay, who's behind that work? You can make a little list. You can approach those people. Yep. And um, and when I got here on a, on a two to three week holiday, um, you know, I made my little list. So I called McCabe and we caught up. Um, Kim thought put me in touch with the Saatchi Auckland people and we caught up I rang Mike O actually out of the blue uh, while that I, was a mistake while I was, while I was here I'd seen the work and I asked around who's doing that work and people said yeah. oh it's Mojo doing that you want to speak to Mike so I rang, I rang Mike um, and then went to see Martin Brown so yes it was Saatchi's who on my return put an offer on the table. So in July, I accepted yep. an offer. Um, I was really lucky as these things are timing, timing tends to determine everything. Andrew Tinning was, you know, his career was in the ascendant. He was working with Gordon Clark. Gordon had resigned. Gordon was going to YNR. Andrew had a vacant seat yep. the same week that my book landed. And I got lucky. Um, Thanks. Andrew and I flew back in July. Andrew and I clicked. We went fishing and caught my first snapper, and yeah. which became my first ever Facebook profile photo, um, as you do or did back then. And um, it's funny there was a big there was a big fishing mafia back then. There was everybody. There was an absolute fishing mafia. Fishing. People were fishing mad. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't believe it because I know you're a big you're a big fan and Mike O's a big a big fan and it was all new to me. But yeah. but Tinning was a huge fan and would spend any moment he could on the water. John McCabe was a huge fan and just wanted to be out there all the time. And yeah, and uh, yeah, I landed in spring, so September, and we spent a lot of time on the water. There was there was barely yeah. a week went by that we weren't somewhere out there catching fish. And it was that was an extraordinary yeah. turn of events for a, for a, you know a lo- it's strange, strange like, like London London being all about all about pubs and you know Friday night going out going out in Soho you come to New Zealand and it and it's all about going fishing and and the the poms like like you me and Mike and various others who came down here seemed to you know adapt to it very quickly it couldn't have been more different you know Soho had its glamour um, 
I think, you know, the Groucho was very hip then because it was full of people yep. like, um, you know, Britpop was taking off or had already taken off. And so was the art scene. So the Groucho was full of Blur, people from Blur. It was full of people from um, the young British art scene, the Hearst crowd. Soho was really taking off in that hip, vibrant, you know, cultural way that has come to define the last couple of decades. And you're right, over yeah, here. It was a new lad. Yeah, and over over here, and Loaded had, Loaded had come out. Yeah, the new lad yeah. the new lad scene was taking off. Football was enormous. And then it couldn't have been yeah. more different on the other side of the world where, where as you know, um, all people wanted to do was go fishing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I was absolutely out of my depth in that in that environment. Absolutely. You and I went yeah. out. I remember we went out with Mike O. One... Um, must have been around the millennium, I think. Yeah, actually. Yeah, uh, been been a few a few of those trips. I, um, yeah, I got maybe. I got really lucky, and I landed with with Andrew Tinning, who is as Kiwi as you can get, and he's he's the salt of you know he's a real good Kiwi lad. He's salt of the earth. He's from Grey Greymouth or Blackball, um, Fire Christchurch, and I think. He now lives in Perth. He now lives in Perth. And I think my London edges were soon knocked off. And so you, it, it was okay for you, the, the, the kind of the transfer of um, mentality of, of the budget and the way that London operated. Yeah, you had no trouble uh, filling in with the Kiwi, Kiwi way. Yeah, it was certainly different. I think because I come from big agencies with big budgets and big structures, I would have, I would have found the whole thing, um, you know, more disruptive, more of a shock, but because I just spent five years in a startup where, you know, you had to get your hands dirty, you had to do everything. Um, you know, if a job needed doing, you had to do, had to do it, you know, big or small. Um, and that's any job in the agency, you had to do it in a startup. And that was very much like the New Zealand way, which is when you're in, you know, you are in an agency and you do have to do everything. And I think the big change all of a sudden was yeah. you're not just doing brand, you know, you're not just doing the glory stuff. You're doing all the point of sale. You're doing all the promotion. You're doing all the retail and sometimes doing the brand work, you know, but I think, yeah. I think that was the shaping of me as a creative in that we could, and thanks to people like Andrew, we could always find a way to get the ideas out because there were a million different ways of shaping the idea. You know, because you were doing yeah. so much of the remit of the brand and the business, you could always find a way to get the ideas out. Um, so I think, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I fell into something that I was quite happy to fall into and it suited my style. And I think by not focusing on things that were glossy and shiny and big budget, I think we found a way to put great ideas, you know, onto the street or into the world in whatever fashion we could, you know, and it was the, you know, Kiwi ingenuity. It was really that if there was a way we would, we would, we would make the way and we would make it happen. And so my five years with Andrew probably determined the rest of my career really in, in the sense that, um, you know, you learn how to make everything happen, you know? Yes. Yeah, no, I, I personally, I, I absolutely appreciated that myself. It was you, you, if you wanted something to happen, you had to go and do it. 
Whereas in London, you you just went here's well, if you were lucky, you went well here's an idea and get people running around you to sort it down here. Um, you, you had to do the lot. So you, you had five good years at Sarches, got some decent work out, got got your feet under the New Zealand table, and then went to TBWA. No, I went. Um, oh. I took a detour to Singapore. Um, ah. There was a job going at Beatty, and out of the blue, I heard from Andrew Stone, and also yep. um, I heard from, who else from Peter, Peter Moore, Peter Moore and Andrew Stone both contacted me about a job that was going at Beatty, and I think there was a finder's fee in it for them, and there was a job in Singapore looking after Ian Beatty's agency. Um, a regional yeah. role as chief creative officer. And um, I threw my hat in the ring for that and um, flew up to Singapore and interviewed, etc. And I got it. So I went from being um, deputy CD with Andrew at Sarchis to being regional chief creative officer of the Beatty Network, which at the time um, was a network serving Singapore Airlines with an office anywhere from Sydney to Singapore to Shanghai to Taiwan. It was actually, it was extraordinary. It was in 12, 12 to 13 countries across Asia. And uh, the key account being Singapore Airlines, but we had um, many others, Singapore, uh, Singapore Tourist Board, Mercedes-Benz, some of the, some of the banks, etc. So that was a really different time. Yeah, that was, that was incredibly different too. How, how did you enjoy working in Asia? Oh, I loved it. I loved Singapore. Some some really amazing times, some really amazing ad- adventures, some great mates. It was fucking hard um, working for Ian Beatty, as everybody will attest, is challenging. And you quickly find out that Ian is not so much the chairman of his own agency. He's also, in effect, the creative chairman of his own agency. So it doesn't matter that he hires a CCO. He's going to tell you what, you know, what the work, yeah. what the work's all about. And it's Ian's, it's Ian's way. I know, I know the type. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I like Ian and, you know, you can like somebody as a person, even though they can be challenging as a, as a business partner. Um, but nobody lasted long at Beatty. I think, um, Neil French famously lasted six to eight weeks. Um, yeah. I think if you lasted six months, that was considered tenure. And there is a saying, as, as soon as you start at Beatty, someone fires a gun. And it's only a matter of time before the bullet catches up with you. And yeah. I, made, I made 18 months. I made 18 months to two years. Um, but it, you know, it did what it needed to do. For me, at 30, I, I made a pact with myself that I would be um, creative director by 36. At 36, I was chief creative officer, so I hit my I hit my goals. You know, I'd been a regional CCO. All of a sudden, I'd been, you know, working in a completely different way to anything I'd been used to. Um, but then one Saturday morning in Singapore, got a phone call out of the blue. It happened to be David Walden. Uh, we hadn't met. I didn't know Devo. Um, at the time, yeah. he was known as Waldo at the time. This was before his transition to, to Devo. So I didn't know Waldo. He was famous. Um, he ran TBWA. He'd worked with Matt Kemsley and um, previously uh, Gary Horn and previously Lishy. I didn't know any of Oh, no, I, I knew, Lishy and I got to know each other at Sarchi's. Andrew Tinning and I hired Andy Lish. 
Um, so we spent two years working together, more or less as a twosome come threesome. Um, and it was Lishy who tipped Devo off. Uh, you know, Lishy said to Devo, they were great mates. If you're looking for a new CD, you should try Andy. He's up in Singapore. Yeah. You know, he's probably had enough of um, Ian by now and he might be willing to come back. And yeah. on a Saturday, I got a call out the blue and it was Devo. And then funny how things work out. We were flying to Perth for a family holiday. And um, that just happened to get us into a closer time zone. Um, I flew from Perth to Melbourne to meet Scott Wyburn to have an interview, which really was yeah. lunch. Um, fly back to Perth the same day, continue the holiday, etc. Um, and that was that. You know, by the end of the year, yeah. left Singapore, flew back to Wyburn's to take over Devo's agency, which I really didn't know anything about. Um, yeah. Again, it was a small agency, about startup size, I think was famous for Goldstein at the time, which had, which had really just broken. ASB, yeah. Yeah. So I think Goldstein was in sort of maybe year two, maybe year three. It was putting, it was putting Devo's agency on the map and... Um, that's when I landed, yeah, 2004. Uh, for those of you, uh, just in case anyone's listening is not familiar with Devo, uh, he was a large man in, in all respects, great character, uh, always fun to be around, sadly died a few years ago, but he was a big part of the uh, advertising scene down here. Devo, without a, without a doubt, <clears throat> one of the greatest human beings that... Um, you could ever um, want to meet, spend time with, and um, for me, uh, have as a business partner. Absolutely incredible yeah. human being, and he would he would yeah. he would light up any room he was in. He would have such a way with clients. He had such a way with with people. Hospitality was really his thing. You know, being a hospitable yeah. host, um, making everybody feel welcome, and charming clients. And making them feel that he cared more for their business um, than they did. And he cared more for them personally than their families did. And Devo just wanted to do great work. He really wanted his agency, his baby, to be responsible for doing great work. You know, his, his mantra was do great work, make money, have fun. And on occasion, the agency would do one of those things. Sometimes it would manage two of those things. You know, certainly when I was getting that, when I arrived, the agency was making money and, and it was having fun, but it was probably not really doing great work. And yeah, but over the next, I was there for nine years, but certainly over the next five years, we really did hit the straps of those, you know, those three. We made money, we had fun, we did great work. And we had an extraordinary run of um, doing work that changed the way that people would often shape their ideas or even what could be an idea or how you would go to world, you know, um, go to market with, with an idea. We had an extraordinary run for, with Adidas and the NZRU and the All Blacks for nine years, um, year in, year yeah. out. Um, we sort of changed the game with that relationship. And, two degrees. and then, um, yeah, ASB got stronger and stronger and became you know, the most successful financial campaign in the country, judged by the people and the effies, many, many years running. Um, 
and then and then later two degrees um, became the most successful third entrant telco launch anywhere in the world. And by third third entrant, that yep. means you know the challenger that comes in to disrupt the du- the incumbent duopoly, which at the time was Telecom and Vodafone. Um, so we really had um, eight or nine years of extraordinary success, and. It was a roller coaster, and like many things, it did come to an end. And I think the GFC was a large part of that, um, in in yeah. the way that you know the GFC shook every industry um, to its knees. And I, for sure, you know, I do remember Devo saying, you know, this recession will will force feed the digital agenda, and it did. And many many industries were irrevocably shaken and changed, and never really recovered from the you know the seismic events of the. GFC, newspapers, media, you know, yeah. you name it. Um, yeah. It, it didn't cause a, a digital uh, revolution. It, it accelerated yeah. it, I guess is the, yeah. what he's saying. Yeah. The second half of the 2000s, yeah. agencies were getting really good at digital. They were either developing the talent or they were buying the talent, you know, merging with digital yeah. shops. Agencies got really good at building their own digital solutions. And um, so, yes, the trend was apparent, but it was accelerated. Yeah, and so was the you know the so destruction it, of the margins of the business, you know, yes. across the board, across yeah. the board. Whatever you could afford yes. to do before the GSC, you couldn't afford to do it afterwards, um, in any yeah. way that resembled the way that you might have done it before. Yeah. Uh, so you you left DBWA and went to Colenso. Yeah, I left TBWA after nine years and it was time for a change. And I think, you know, you, you, I left willingly and voluntarily and with six months notice to give myself the best possible chance of, you know, leaving good people on board before I made my exit. Um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I needed to change um, what I was doing and the way I was doing it. And... Within a year, I think within less than a year, within six months or within a year at least, I was um, contracting at Colenso, which later became a permanent gig um, for two to three years, working with Wertho and and Garrett, and which was extraordinary. It was a career highlight to yeah. go and work with someone like Nick, you know, Wertho, you know, having having yeah. admired his work for so long, and and it was a case of. You know, I was willing to actually go and work under someone else to go and do that, to have that opportunity. And had an extraordinary... Just in case of someone who's very, very young, that's uh, Nick Worthington, who's another bloody pom who uh, came down here and had massive, massive success at uh, Colenso. Yeah, another one. And another one, yes, yeah, it's, it's Nick's, Nick's BBH connection, which, you know, McCabe and the guys had also been at BBH but had returned. Um, and I think Hegarty being the connection there between lots of those guys, because I think, I think John Hegarty has got his own sort of fondness for, you know, New Zealand and his many, many trips down, down here. Yeah. Um, and Nick had just, you know, been into Mojo, done amazing work. He uh, moved over to Colenso, continued doing amazing work in the same way that he was doing amazing work in the UK. And he was, you know, his, his, Levi's work in particular will always stand up there as being some of the best work that, you know, you might ever want to have on your own 
your own reel if you could. And um, went to Colenso, had an extraordinary time for three years. Did, again, did some really great work. Um, got very fortunate with, with timing. It, it, you know, it's, it's the right briefs with the right people, with the right clients on the right day. And you can make it, you can make it happen. Left, left Colenso with another Grand Prix and that made three. Um, having picked up two at, two at the TBWA, um, yeah, made made the so made what, the triple. What were the three? Uh, sorry, Andy. What were your three uh, Grand Prix? Uh, there was one two thousand and seven. We we um, we bagged two, so we won for Adidas, NZRU, and All Blacks for Bonded by Blood campaign, and one was for ASB Bank, and that was for the the launch of Pago, which was the the world's first digital wallet. Um, incredible, really. Um, back in two thousand six seven, and a few late, a few years later at Colenso, we we launched um, a new platform uh, for DB, and um, we did the Brutrolian campaign, which was uh, yeah. an extraordinary idea. You know, to turn the by, the byproduct of the brewing process into a, a biofuel that people, the length and breadth of the country, could buy and fill up their cars with. And we, you know, it was amazing that you could get on the gas one night with your mates, and then the next, the very next day, the byproduct of that could be um, filling up the car. And uh, you, you went to, in a sense, you went to the enemy after that, because uh, generally, seen that uh, the tech giants have, you know, maybe not exactly dancing on the grave of um, advertising, but they've they've certainly uh, diverted a lot of the budget. Well, it was certainly the frenemy, and yeah, there it was noticeable that there had, you know, there had begun to be a drift that people I knew of and respected and had done amazing work in their advertising careers, one by one, were moving over to Silicon Valley, and Andrew Keller who everybody would know really the work of Crispin Porter and Andrew Keller and friends working for Alex Boguski had done extraordinary work through the late 90s and the 2000s. And Andrew, just ahead of me, six months before maybe, had moved over to Facebook. And I'd had really good friends that had moved over to Google. And it just seemed to be, you know, a movement, a movement was beginning, and I was pretty bored with. I was pretty bored with advertising at the time. It just felt like every room I'd walked in, I'd had the same conversation thousands of times, and you know, it didn't really yeah. matter who the clients were. I'd done the categories, I'd done the clients, I'd had the conversations, we'd done the work, we'd done everything we could, and it was Groundhog Day, and I really needed to be challenged in a new way. And I made a list. I made a short list, um, maybe 10 agencies and businesses long, um, which I cut down to five. And I gave myself six months and I went through that list and I had 40 interviews in six months. And for me, it came down to um, RGA was on that list. And I really liked the kind of thing they were doing. And it really came. And I had eight interviews at RGA all the way up to Nick Law. And it really came down to I would go to RGA or I would go to Facebook because out of all those 40 interviews, the only conversations that were different were in those, those two businesses. 
So for me, it had to be yep. one or the other, and the role had to be um, it had to be one one flight from New Zealand. So it had to be San Francisco, Sydney, or Singapore. And at the time, I think RGA were they had a role in New York, but that was two flights, and it was just too far. And Facebook had a role in Sydney. Rebecca Carrasco, who I really rate, had just gone into um, the job. And uh, there was a role going, and I applied for the Sydney role at Facebook. And 12 interviews later, um, got the gig. And wow. and then spent on, the next five on, years online, there. Online interviews, or you, you went over there a few times? Uh, I did go there, but all my interviews, all my interviews actually during the process were remote. And it was, this was five and a half years ago. So this was my first induction to living online in video meetings, um, working remotely and presenting to people simultaneously. And, you know, I was sitting in New Zealand, but I was having interviews in Sydney, um, Shanghai and Singapore, all with the same people, all with all within the same interview, and that's common now. But it was quite radical then. And yeah. one of the first obstacles at Facebook, or at the time, you you were given a hack, you were given five days to respond to a brief, and then you would present the work back to three people in three different roles in three different countries simultaneously. And everything about it was different. And um, I really enjoyed it. It was really hard. It was really, it was really a different way of working. It was more strategic. It was, it was um, really stretching the mind. And yeah, I, I actually didn't think I would make a year. It was that hard, but I stayed for five. And went and went from what, being the, what kind of briefs? Sorry, Andy. What kind of briefs did you get? Give me an example of um, the kind of stuff. My first. <clears throat> my first brief, uh, which was actually destined for Rich Maddox, um, my my last ever brief before Facebook was to film um, New Zealand in three hundred and sixty degrees, and that that brief was destined for Rich, but Rich had left his own agency and gone to Shine, and yeah. that was literally a job that I finished conceptually before going into Facebook but then took over executionally as I arrived at Facebook. So uh, my first job was shooting New Zealand in 360 degrees with an $800 camera. So that was, that was, that was unique in the sense that it broke the production paradigm of anything that I'd been used to before. Um, it was mobile first. It was using a technology that was untested. And we were really the proving ground as to whether you could do that or not. And, and, we, and we did manage to do it. And the work was the work was very respectable and convincing that you could shoot an entire you know an entire country with a eight hundred dollar camera and then and then use that work for all your global audiences who are consuming your work on mobile. Um, so mobile. So so the the the, the, the briefs were like it, it was treating Facebook as an advertising agency. Um. Yeah, I think my first few my first few briefs were like that, but that didn't that didn't that didn't set the way that things would be. Y- yes, you're right. But the first few briefs I did were very much like Facebook has an in-house agency. Here comes the brief. Facebook is also the platform. Facebook is also where the audience is and 
The next brief was Nestle and Uncle Toby, a straight video campaign, mobile first. My very next brief was extraordinary. It was for, and this is what I thought my Facebook life was going to be like. Um, it was for Chevrolet. And they were the naming yeah. rights sponsors for Man U. And the brief went to um, a CD in Singapore, who I met in San Francisco, um, who happened to share the brief with me. I was from Manchester. Um, I was a Man U fan. And um, I said to Juhi, uh, the, the CD, look, I'm flying back to, to New Zealand tonight. By the time I get off the plane, I'll give you a campaign. And, and I did that. Yeah. And I literally got off the plane, emailed the, the campaign creative to Juhi. I was back in Sydney. Juhi was Singapore, in Singapore. The client was in Detroit. The advertising asset was in Manchester and the audience was going to be in Asia and South America. And all of a sudden, I actually had that, that moment of, wow, this is what my future creative life is going to be. Um, join, yeah. joining all these global dots, but per, the, the pursuit of the work is the same. But the audience is global and it doesn't really matter where we are. We can all connect to each other, with each other in the pursuit of the work. Um, and we flew to Manchester. We worked with a, a production crew from uh, the UK and we filmed Old Trafford in 360 and and we're the first people to to do so to to give people the experience of what it was like to actually step out onto the hallowed turf even though these people would be having that experience in either asia or south america but then would win that the, the chance to win that experience to go and experience that for themselves for real um you know brought to it was one of those um money can't buy experiences that somebody like chevrolet could offer at the time yeah. So, so basically, because I, I I don't know how the because uh, I don't like so you you went to Facebook or uh, Rebecca did and uh, Matt and Dave went to Google. Uh, to me, that was a black hole. I got no idea what you guys were doing. But it, it sounds like you would uh, clients were going to Facebook or Facebook was going to clients and going, okay, uh, uh, we did, we're going to do a campaign to run on Facebook. So you were, you were basically running as um, Facebook's internal uh, advertising agency. Yeah, we were. We were. And it was often it would be client briefs would come direct, um, either from client or media partner and go, look, nobody understands your platform like you. Therefore, you should probably yeah. do the creative work to make sure it's executed the right way you'll know the right people to use who are going to execute it the right way. And you've also got the global reach in the audience base um, to make this a success. So almost end-to-end -end solution, you know, um, yep. brief to thinking, to execution, to audience, to, to results. Now that yep. did seem to be how things might be. It wasn't really how things worked out often. And it's certainly not how things seem to work out now but it was very much i think for my first year 16 2016 17 it did work that way a lot i got a lot of work like that that was, yeah. that was direct to facebook either from client or media or some external party um it wouldn't always be the way i think there was a shift in facebook not to challenge existing agency relationships um 
I think Facebook understood that actually it could never scale its own offering to compete with the advertising industry itself in any market. So the, the, the only formula for Facebook to succeed was to partner with the people that are already doing it well in market and actually build up advocacy, build up um, education, build up relationships in market by partnering with agencies. So there was a pivot. You know, my first year didn't resemble years three, four, five, and six. You know, I then spent yeah. the next two years working actually for Andrew Keller, but solely um, Andrew ran the global agency and global accounts department in Facebook. So I was specifically given BBDO as a remit. Look after BBDO, look after their accounts, help them use Facebook in the right way, help them do the, the very best work they can on our platform for their clients. So we actually moved to a partnership model. And did, did you ever come across Cheryl uh, Sandberg's theory that uh, that, uh, that uh, online advertising, uh, film online advertising should all be seven seconds long? No, no, I didn't. Okay, all right. You're no, not, I didn't. All right, okay, I'm going to. No, I think I think there are many stereotypes and tellings of the stories of and rules that have all been passed you know, that have all been passed on um, over the years or passed down to various partners about what you should and what you shouldn't do to succeed on the platforms. And the real shame about that is that lots of principles became seen as rules and those rules were handed to agencies and partners as almost like a rule book for success on the Facebook platform. And creative people don't like being given the rules for success. You know, the creative mind needs to find the formula for success itself. That's the creative endeavor. Creative people, you know, bar none, hate being told what to do. And you cannot go to a creative department and tell them how to behave. And it was unfortunate that, you know, many, many of my interactions with partners and creative people was actually spent undoing the myths and undoing the rules and yeah. help people, helping people see that actually good principles are good principles. But actually, the only way to go and succeed here is to um, experiment, try many different things, you know, be, be as wild as you can be or be, be as conservative as you might want to be it's up to you but try lots of things to find out what's going to work for you and you will often find that your own recipe for success can be counter to the principles or can be counter to what previously people saw as rules you know i've had great successes with long form content on the platform when rules tell you that three seconds and six seconds are the order of the day you know yeah. i can give you case study after case study that proves people will watch long form content and communication on, on, on platforms, you know, Absolutely. but you've just got to you find out, to yeah, you've enough. just got to find out what works for you. But it, it is the case that, you know, people's behavior changes daily and depending what behavior state they're in, there are times when they're just gonna, you know, if they're grazing on their phones, then all they're going to have time for is fast burn content. You know, if they're interacting with stuff, then that's the time to serve them interacting, uh, interactive work. And if they're actually, you know, leaning back or, or leaning into a long form session, then 
yes, they will be responsive to long-form work in those moments. That po- portfolio of behaviors exists in everybody. And, yeah. and global ag- aggregate behaviors will reinforce that. You know, the data will reinforce that. You know, and you need to, you need to prepare work that, that serves each of those behaviors. You can't just narrowly define it as one of them only. It can't just be short form only, even though short form is super important. You know, it can't be long form only because, you know, a lot of our time short form is necessary, you know, but devices are equally interactive and you actually need to play to people's desire to interact with things. So so you need to create for, you know, the creative mind needs to furnish ideas in campaigns that respond to each of those um, circumstances or behaviors, you know, the short, the long, the interactive, you know. But it's got to be fucking interesting because it's gladi- gladiatorial, you know. Yeah, I, th- I think the interesting well, never interesting or interesting or useful because you don't, you know, if if something useful comes along and you need that usefulness, then you will go for it, you know. Absolutely, I, I'm forever looking at videos on how to change tap washers and you know put up shelves. And, yeah, me too. Uh, and that kind of stuff. So, what what do you see? As the future, it's for advertising agencies or advertising as a career, how it's going to change. I do remember when I... Okay, thank you, Andy. <laughs> yeah, I do remember when I was having all those interviews with Nick Law, and this is six years ago, that he, he had a point of view, which there was going to be a big shake-up and the agencies were going to, after the shake-up, they would resemble narrative boutiques. Because by and large, every single function of an agency, uh, bar the narrative function, could, could probably be done just as well elsewhere. But the thing that agencies really did do well and still tend to do better is the pure creative work. Um, yeah. So I do think... Agencies need to play to that strength more. I think agencies in the pursuit of growth have done and will always continue to try and grab every piece of a business to make itself profitable and useful. But I think the truth of it is in doing so, um, agencies can't sustain that amount of um, overhead with with the income they're receiving from clients. I think agencies have to, you know, get sharper with what they're good at and just, you know, keep the preeminence of what they're good at um, and just and, well, the, and the, accept that the, other people are doing other things just as well, if not better, you know. Well, the margins that agencies work on have co- are coming down in, in every single respect in terms of media in terms of production in terms of strategy so the whole the whole bit, i mean you, you talk about um i don't like to use the phrase content creation but what was the, the phrase you used narrative making narrative narrative boutique and i just mean that in terms of you know storytelling boutique or at least control yeah yeah know, story controlling the brand narrative is what agencies are often good at or defining the brand narrative or setting the brand narrative which all the other partners have to fall in step with you know, um, just yeah. defining what it is about a brand that we find most compelling. 
um, or the agencies yeah, can the, make most the big, compelling the big idea. Yeah, most compelling for us in the way that they take these you know brand stories to market. Yeah, yeah, the big idea. So that so that's almost yeah, as we almost a creative strategy, if you like. And the, the issue with creative strategy is agencies basically gave strategy away for free because they they in the old days anyway they'd make it up on production. Production yeah. budgets have come down so much that there's there's nothing nothing left for that. And if you're not charging for strategy, because strategy is a really hard thing to charge for, because how, how do you gauge an idea? Is, is a gauge a, a million-dollar idea or a, or a ten-dollar idea? Very difficult to tell. Yeah. Very difficult to charge for. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I feel for agencies in the modern age, and my daughter works in one. I know how hard people work, and I know how much people care, and I know how much people desire to do the, the best work they can for, for clients. Under yeah. the most extraordinarily difficult circumstances, you know, you know, are they being paid enough to hire, you know, to hire the best people to do their best job? You know, can people even survive in this industry to do to do the great work necessary? You know, can they make ends meet? You know, when every single person well, I, in the agency I, I, is being thrashed. You know, yeah, are, are the best people going to work in advertising? Well, yeah, you know, it's a great question. It's question. a bit like you know. I think we began our careers in advertising, and I'm sure for similar reasons, which is, you know, advertising is where the audiences were. And if you wanted to do work that everybody saw, then you needed to go and work in an agency and you needed to do the TV, the print and the outdoor that everybody saw. So, you know, mass media seen by everybody and the cultural stories that were shared to everybody yeah. were from the creative department and advertising agencies and work was the talk you know creative work was the talking point of the playground you know of the pub yes of conversation yes of people meeting and people just you know advertising was a was a dynamic part of the popular culture it really was so therefore it was a magnet for talent and, and, and you got paid well uh, in the days, but yeah, I, I eventually, eventually, with, you know, you, eventually, you got paid well. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You started off on, on 50, 50 quid a week, but there were, you know, once you got up the chain, there were <laughs> certainly the eighties. There were there were uh, people earning very decent money for coming up with daft ideas. And as you say, I think that's very important that advertising was a deep part of the culture. Certainly in the UK, it was a, it was a. It was a water cooler conversations. It was schoolyard conversations. It was dinner party conversations, and it was a it was a great outlet for creativity. If uh, you know, we take you. You weren't good enough to be a professional musician. I wasn't good enough to be a professional writer. But hey, you could you had some outlet for your creativity. You could you could do your best to show people what you could do and have fun doing it in advertising agencies. And I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. You know, we could make those 30 second dramas. We could make those 30 second skits. You know, we could make the things that lit up the conversation, you know, and and were part of um, and were part of the culture. You know, back in a time when people would would often remark, you know, the ads are better than the programs, you know. Yep. And it was that was everybody knew that that was. That was just the way it was. And if you wanted to be a part of that, then you would go and do your 
your damned hardest to get a job in an agency, which is why we all slogged it out for years, you know, for yep. years of low pay and hard work just to get the briefs, to finally get the chance to do the work that everybody would see. And advertising yep. has lost its position as being um, the conduit to the mass market. We don't anymore have a shared reality. You know, all people in a country or in a group or in a community will not see the same things and all people will not remark upon the same things and all people will not carry around the same stories and images and songs and jokes, you know, in their heads in a, in a, in a way that we used to. And yeah. so it's much harder to determine um, well, it's much harder to even see, is great work being made? You know, or if it is, who's seeing it? And you know, if we're all seeing different things, then we don't know. But what we are all seeing now is we all see the same content on Netflix or we all see the same content on yes. you know, yeah. Neon or HBO or we all see, you know, great skits on TikTok or we all see... You know, the same memes across various other platforms. So we have a different, we have different shared realities now. And I think the attraction for people who want to make work or want to be creative and share that work with an audience, then you probably are going to go and find the outlet for that somewhere else. And, and that... Okay, well... um I, uh, yeah, so we have turned into the the two Yorkshiremen. Um, it were better. You know, we had uh, we had it tough, but it was fun. But uh, what are you going to do now, Andy? Um, it's it's still fun, but it's fun in a different way. Do you know what I mean? You can still, you know, technology means we can make anything at our tabletops. We can film. We can film anything. Um, within a couple of hours and we, we can do it ourselves or we can do it with willing um, comrades. Um, you know, you can make stuff really quickly and it can be funny and it can be really good and you can find an audience and you can get satisfaction that goes with it, you know, and you can build up a, a career. I think creativity is flourishing in, in a very different way and it can still be really satisfying and really rewarding um, but it, but in different ways. I think if you're trying to apply that trade as a creative in an agency, then it's fucking hard. Do you know what I mean? People often do yeah. remark, you know, there's never been a better time to have an idea, you know, because the distance between you and your audience has never been shorter. And yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. That's absolutely true. Now, it's also, you know, there's never been a more challenging time to have an idea because everything is now so fucking complex you know so we have a yeah. we have a really really you know there's a real tension between yes it's never been easier yes it's never been more fucking complex and well it's 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 never been easier to make music but it's never been it's never been it's almost never been harder to get anyone to listen yeah. to it because you can yeah. you can make music easily and you can you can stick it on on Spotify or whatever, but getting anybody to actually spend some time and, and listen to what you've done is not is not easy. The yeah. tail is yeah. Um, yeah goes on forever. Yeah. 
And, and you know, as, as you know, I've, I've just spent two years writing a book and oh, yes, that's, book. that's yep. about to go to market. It's actually going to start to go to market next week. Um, yep. And I'll be honest. Okay, for the listeners, for listeners who, who can read, which I think is about one in three, um, what's it called? It's called Full Bleed. Full bleed and uh, uh, sell it. You have 30 seconds It's as an advertising man to sell your book. It's remarkable stories and hard-won lessons from the coalface's creativity and the bleeding edge of advertising and technology. Um, it's all the things that you wanted to know about creativity that I've been brave enough to go and ask or to find out. You know, it's 30 years of a creative life distilled into 260 pages um, for your enjoyment. You know, my, my, my lessons, my fuck-ups, and my hard work packaged in a way that's enjoyable for you. Um, okay, how do you get it? It's uh, on pre-order now, Amazon, um, and the yeah. physical edition. So it's, it's on pre-order now until October the 28th when it will, will be released as a Kindle edition. It will be um, on sale as a physical edition by then um, in New Zealand in a relatively limited way. And it will be for sale as an NFT um, from the middle of next week, from October the 13th. And I think what I was, I think the point I was going to share, Paul, was that, you know, I spent two years writing a book following that process that was, I actually found really enjoyable and loved every single moment of it. And it was relatively non-technological. So it was just um, pure thinking, pure writing, pure shaping over and over again until you're happy with something. And then, and then more recently, the last two or three months have been, okay, so how, you know, how do you build an audience for this book? You know, you know, we, we decimate, um, millions of trees to make books that nobody reads. You know, we, we, Amazon is full of millions of books that nobody ever, ever hears of. And so, yes, it's never been easier to write and publish a book. It's never been harder to get the audience for the book. And I yeah. spent the last three, three, three months, just as I have done for every other client in my career, um, writing the ads, making the ads, putting together the marketing plan, um, building the, the PR story, the narrative and all the necessary things around the book so that when it does go to, to market, you know, there will be a campaign around the book that people do get to see. You know, I'm not going to try and this thing, sell this thing on word of, word of mouth alone. It ain't going to work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Lesson for all clients, you know, word of mouth's great. You know, if you can get it, you have to advertise. People have to know about your product in a really fucking interesting way so they might go and consider buying it. Now, you can wrap as many layers as you like on that onion, but you have to do that. And then you have to throw in the really unexpected moments in the campaign, which is, you know, the fuck me moments. That's interesting. The talkable moments whereby people suddenly go, shit, that's interesting enough for me to go and do something about it. So I spent the last three, three months getting all those pieces together, which will be coming out soon to promote and market and sell the book. You know, according to all the principles that you and I know, according to all the principles that I've become accustomed to it, Facebook, and uh, Facebook, um, and and everything else. You know, you can't rely, you know, on the existence of of the it alone. You know. Yeah, you 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 can't just create it. You got to 
Sell the bloody And that's been the fucking, um, that's been the complex and challenging bit. You know, the book was fun. Uh, <laughs> the marketing bit is the fucking hard bit. That's... Okay, there, there, there's a lesson for you kids. Now, there, this podcast will, pro- will probably take a week or so to put together, so I expect that by the time uh, it is released, um, your book, Andy, will be um, out and about. So uh, go and check it out on Amazon, and hopefully if you order a copy, it won't take too long to be delivered. One of the interesting things about, you know, while we are quag- you know, we're bogged down by COVID and the real world does grind to a halt, but the digital world races on. And, you know, I left Facebook to publish a book. I didn't mean that to happen on practically day one of Auckland, New Zealand going into lockdown again. And what, yeah. that, did, what that did for me was to spend the last five or six weeks completely immersed in the, the digital world of blockchain and NFTs, which yeah. happened to provide a really um, fortunate in terms of timing um, ability to explore something brand new in terms of how can you go to market with something as um, well well known as a book, and which is where the idea of selling the book as a as an NFT came into came into play. And you know most people would if they think of NFTs at all, and most people don't, they're, they're probably aware of you know million dollar sums for artwork that looks like a JPEG or a GIF. You know, yep. huge, huge sums are being traded globally for what looks like a, you know, often a hastily conceived piece of digital art. But if you look, if you look a little bit deeper than that in terms of what um, the blockchain itself can offer and what NFTs themselves can offer by way of um, proof of ownership or digital authentication of a work of art whatever that is, whatever it may be, then you can really begin to open some interesting ideas. And the idea that you can sell a book as an NFT and thereby, and that, you know, what you're selling is digital ownership of that item in the digital realm. Um, this does raise some really interesting questions, which is basically, what are you selling then? Are you, are you selling a book? Are you selling this book as a work of art? Or are you selling this book as an item which is transferring the publishing rights to its new owner, you know, all of those things or none of those things. And, and that's also what we're going to try and do next week because we're selling the book in three forms as um, NFTs, the master version and edited version and a super short version, which confer the right of publishing to the NFT owner um, just to explore a different way of going to market with something as traditional as a book so um, if you say if somebody buys the nft of your book yeah does that mean if there's a, a if i guess with amazon you don't have print runs but does it mean that the from from there on they get all the proceeds from the sale well I've, what, what i've decided to do is confer and you don't have to do this but you can confer i've decided to confer publishing rights um as part of the nft now not not all NFTs have royalties built into them, but some of them do. I think I think the vernacular is um, smart contracts, and the NFTs I'm using through a, through a platform called Litho, which is launching on October the thirteenth, is using a royalty system. So the secondary market for NFTs is actually bigger than the primary market. So the the on selling of something 
and thereby the original owner receives royalties can be, you know, a future long tail of income to do with the item itself, be that a piece of art or be that a book or whatever. So, yes, you can choose to do that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a brand new system of publishing. And I think whether anybody will understand that or not or, you know, come to understand that in two or three years, perhaps, is, you know, part of the um, interesting reason for doing it. Part of the wonder of the universe. I guess you'll find out in time. Yeah. 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 So by the time the next time we, we meet Paul, we'll probably have an answer to that. Okay, we got we got um, we got uh, about eight years before our next meeting, so uh, we shall we shall dig it up and see how we go. Hey, cheers, Andy. Go well. Thank you, Paul. Stay safe. Uh, yes. Good luck with the book. I enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Thanks, mate. By the flickering spires of candlelight While the wicked sleep sound The anxious toss and turn Thoughts come not as single spies But in battalions While the wicked sleep sound The anxious toss and Give my trembling hands crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight while the wicked sleep sound. I want the anxious toss and turn. Thoughts come not as single spies, but in battalions while the wicked sleep sound. I want the anxious toss and Thank you.